Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Well, good afternoon, good evening, or good morning, depending on wherever or whenever you're listening. Thank you and what, for once again uh, tuning into the Perspectives on Leadership podcast brought to you by Fire Engineering. My name is Steve Shaw. I'm honored to be an assistant chief of Fort Lauderdale Fire Rescue, and I'm also honored to be part of the Fire Engineering family as an author, a presenter at FDIC, and a host for this podcast. With all the amazing podcasts that are out there, I am truly honored that you're choosing to listen to this one. I continue to be a consummate student of leadership, and I am grateful for this platform, for the value that provides those who listen, and for the opportunity to provide, it provides me to grow as a leader within my agency. So years ago, Chief Halton once told me that FDIC was a tactics conference, not just with firefighting, but with all things, leadership, training, mentorship, and no matter what we talk or present or spoke on, we should always focus on the tactical ways for our listeners or readers to model or deploy these ideals in the real world. So in that spirit and always in his honor, I will continue to focus on those tactics as well as the concepts during this podcast. Uh, perspective is my passion. It is a powerful tool in the toolbox of a leader. And I continue to be fascinated by how our perspectives affect our ability to lead. The goal for this podcast is the same as it always has been, to take a concept or a trait that we associate with leadership and take a deep dive, dive that rabbit hole. Our fire rescue service is filled with amazing leaders and each have their own perspectives on leadership. I really want to pick their brains and allow them to provide as many tactical and immediately deployable takeaways as possible to the listener. I'm forever grateful to Fire Engineering and, and to all the people as part of the Clarion staff that have allowed me uh, this platform so I can do my part in passing it on to my brothers and sisters in the fire service. So for today, I, I'm very excited to have Editor-in-Chief for Fire Engineering and the Educational Director for FDIC, David Rhodes, on the podcast today. Uh, I've only gotten to know uh, David through the past year. Uh, though I've known that he's worked, he was working closely with Chief Halton, and he was at some point going to take on the reins for both fire engineering and FDIC. Uh, unfortunately, as we're all aware, that the changing of the guards occurred a lot sooner than was expected in a way we weren't, weren't expecting. But that all being said, it has been an inspiration watching him take the helm and lead us forward in his own way. And it's fitting that the topic of discussion today is on succession planning. This has always been one of my passion areas and things like and questions like, how do we prepare our current and future leaders? How do we set up our members for success as they take on leadership roles? Uh, are we properly preparing our own folk to take on the positions when we move up or retire? And of course, what are the tactical ways that we can actively participate in all of this? So I'm very excited to explore these and other areas uh, and get Chief Rhodes' thoughts on this concept, not only from his experience on the job, but also from his journey within fire engineering. So a quick bio on Chief Rhodes. Uh, David is a 37-year fire service veteran, retired from Atlanta, Georgia Fire Department. He currently works for Clarion Events as the editor-in-chief of Fire Engineering Magazine and is the educational director for FDIC. He is chief elder for the Georgia Smoke Diver Program, served on the FDIC Executive Advisory Board, was a hands-on training coordinator for FDIC, author for Fire Engineering Magazine and Fire Apparatus and Equipment Magazine. He authored the Hump Day Hangout SOS column for our fire rescue and served as an adjunct instructor for the Georgia Fire Academy and as an advisory board member for the Emeritus, 
for UL Fire Service or Fire Safety Research Institute, currently a board member for Firefighter Air Coalition. He has served as an incident commander for the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, the Type 3 All Hazards Incident Management Team, and was a task force leader for the Georgia Search and Rescue Team. He's the president of Rhodes Consultants Incorporated, which provides public safety training, consulting, and promotional assessment centers. So before I give the, the floor to Chief uh, or to, to David Rose for a little intro, there's three things I was thinking about before we got started here today, and, and th these are them. The first thing was the concept of relativity. And what I mean by that is in my last talk with Jess Rodzinka last month, we had discussed how the senior firefighter may find himself or herself in that senior man or senior woman position way sooner than expected to be for a variety of reasons. And the examples I mentioned above with, with, with Chief Rhodes is kind of right on with that idea and proves that this can happen to any of us at any level at any time. So we have to be prepared for life's curveballs and whatnot. The second thing I was thinking of, and this, this came from Chief Rhodes' uh, uh, FDIC presentation. And if you haven't heard his keynote, I strongly recommend you look up uh, David Rhodes' FDIC 2023 and listen to that keynote. And and not for nothing, but it was the keynote that we needed to hear. And a couple of things he, he mentioned, one of them specifically was the idea of challenging and pushing us out of our comfort zone. And this really spoke to me. It also reminded me of Aaron Fields' FDSC keynote in which he was quoted to say, comfort is the enemy of growth. And then we have the ability, if not the responsibility, to provide that push to our own when needed. Last thing I was thinking about before prepping for this was and something else he, he quoted in his keynote was, people are placed in our lives for a reason. And it reminded me that we work with some amazing people in the fire service. And sometimes a single action or a conversation or a shared experience can have these exponential impacts that we never saw coming. And that we should be intentional about creating those opportunities for those in our charge. So, uh, David, Thank you for joining me. I've been excited for this for a while. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I just, I know you're a busy guy, but thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Glad to be here, buddy. Well, you know what? Uh, let's, let's dive into it, man. Um, I, I know I mentioned a couple of things about succession plan, and I figured as we started this, we'd kind of drift and, and go in different directions, but let me just dive right into it. So in terms of this concept for succession planning, what have been some of your experience, both good and bad, in, in terms of the whole game for succession planning in general? What have been some of your good and bad experiences with this? Um, I guess starting with the with the bad would be no succession planning at all. And uh, I think by nature, uh, the type of personalities that get into the fire service are uh, high speed they want instant results. And so we're too busy to stop and do something as methodical of really planning out succession planning. It's a good buzzword. We talk about it a lot, but it's, uh, if we stop and we have to slow down in order to accomplish it, and it's just not in our DNA, we have to, you know, force it, um, to, to happen. And so I think that's definitely the, the downside is you see where people get put into places that, uh, they either have no experience. They're the next person on the list. Um, that was always one that frustrated me the most. Um, one example I can give you is, uh, when I made Lieutenant, I ended up going to a 40 hour work week, which I wasn't so much against the 40 hour work week as I was, I didn't really want to go where I, where I got assigned. And so I had been a fire instructor for 
10 years at that point. And, uh, I volunteered to go to training, which nobody was volunteering to go to training, <laughs> sent all my credentials to the training chief, had a meeting with the training chief and he was a hundred percent on board. He was like, I'll have this done by the end of the day and you'll report out to training, you know, tomorrow. And, uh, he went and met with the fire chief and he came back about 30 minutes later and he goes, sorry, man, not going to happen. And at the time I was the union president. And so the fire chief didn't want any part of doing anything that was, uh, that he thought I might actually, uh, want to do. So I was in my, I was in my assignment as a, as a punishment. And so, uh, that was, that was, you know, a, a, a bad side. And, and over my career, I saw several times where, um, a chief would get promoted or retire and the new person would come in. And we used to joke that, you know, the new person just put a trash can at the end of the desk and swept everything on the desk off and started over from scratch. And so there was never any continuity in the, in the plan. It was, it was personality and individually driven in a lot of sections in the organization. So you didn't have the long-term, you know, goals and, and planning. It was a new day, new guy and and their personal preference sort of ruled the day. So those were some, some bad sides of it. Um, some good sides um, were we had a chief for a while that was really, that really wanted people to, see different parts. I guess this is a good and bad. I wanted to see people to see different parts of the organization. So um, they did some some rotating around. But um, if you're just rotating position to position and you're not working with anybody, it's kind of like the, the previous analogy where, you know, you come in, rake everything in the trash and start over. And we tried to convince him to basically build a, like a shadowing program where you would go in and you would work with the existing training chief or the existing inspections chief or the existing, uh, operations chief and sort of be like their, um, assistant or their aide for a period of time so that you could see the decisions being made real time, but you could also, you know, complete some of the work that was done in that area. And then if that person was off, you could, uh, you could fill in, uh, for them. And where I originally saw that, uh, where it really stuck out was in our, we called them command technicians. Some people call them drivers or chief's aides is in Atlanta. That was always a driver rank. So it was somebody who was already certified to drive the engine, the truck, and then they would fall into the duty as the aide and they would be with the battalion chief all the time and they would handle staffing and then they would assist, you know, with the command paraphernalia on an incident. Sometimes they would um, help be a safety officer, maybe be eyes and ears on another part of the building. And I saw that uh, several departments, uh, Phoenix being probably the first one I saw, their command technician or chief's aide um, was a captain where ours was uh, a driver. So we had firefighter, driver, lieutenant, captain, the battalion chief. And I thought it was such a good um, 
built in. It's not really a a secession planning. uh, What would you say? Like a, a specific program or whatever, like a mentorship program or whatever. It just occurs by the nature of the assignment and the job. So I thought that was one of the best ways to accomplish it was they required captains to serve in that chief's aid position before they were even eligible to be promoted to battalion chief. And uh, they got to see the day-to-day workings of the, the battalion car. And then when the battalion chief was off, then they just moved up and it was a seamless transition. Obviously you have, you know, different personalities and all, but the work um, was consistent and, and the plans were consistent. Then they would fill in another captain to come and drive that was on the list to become the aide at some point. And I want to say Phoenix required you to do that at least a year before you were eligible for promotion. And a lot of people do that now, but I think, uh, you know, in our organization, we had some drivers that probably could have run incidents more efficiently than (laughs) some of the, uh, the, the chiefs and the captains that were, you know, the captain would fill in from his company over on the car, but he wouldn't have that, that day-to-day routine or that knowledge, uh, whereas the aide would have. So, um, again, it was good for the aide, but then they would leave and go be lieutenants for a while somewhere, and then they'd get promoted to captains. It'd be a long time before they were promoted to chief. So that was something that I that I pushed for that was kind of a um, secession planning by design, uh, you know. And you know how things are. If we can design it into our normal routine, it seems to be more successful than it just being a special program or something that, you know, gets a lot of attention for a short period of time, but it's not a sustainable um, program. We always laugh about the uh, the secret room at headquarters where all the unfinished projects are, you know, from over the years. The shelves are full with all these great ideas, but they never fully got developed. So just by putting some things in place like that, I think it's a good um a good natural fit and it, and it helps people learn and understand, you know, in context. It's, you know, you, you laid out a good groundwork for the rest of this conversation. And some of the things you said right at the beginning about we're sometimes so busy that we don't have time to develop what should be a good succession plan or a routing of the person that takes over from us when we're done. And I, I've been the victim of that as well. In fact, years ago, one of my, my boss directed me and the other battalion chief who we were with, to help develop uh, basically a, a roadmap for the people coming in after us. And I'll be the first one to admit that I didn't do that. But fortunately, the EMS chief on the other side of my department did. And he came up with this EMS Bible. And basically he put down in words and in, in, in a booklet, everything that that position was responsible for. And later on, when I transitioned over to the EMS chief role, I basically looked at that book, I'm like, oh, this. This is how this position runs. And it was very tactical in nature, but my God, did it help me get my footing before learning all the people and the players and then responding to COVID and all that kind of stuff. So I get it. Sometimes we're so busy where we don't take in stride or take into consideration the need to put those things down, either a paper or memorialize them or SOP them to make it, like you said, sustainable. And that's that's that was powerful. And I think that you also said the word buzzword. I think that I... And I'm sure you've experienced this too. A lot of times when I'm teaching, I'll throw out the occasional comment of, you know, hey, how good are we at succession planning? And then half the room will laugh. They'll start joking. 
because we're not traditionally very good at uh, and it is a buzzword and, and it's one of those things where we have to take it seriously rather than just being one of those words we just throw around. Um, you also mentioned that you were volunteered into a certain role to go to training or that you volunteered to go. And, you know, I, I, being in the, the, the areas I run in here and even the South Florida area, it, it's 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 endemic everywhere. It's a lot of times without that proper succession plan, who was in the next spot? Well, the last the last to be promoted, the person right. who maybe doesn't want it and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I, we so we struggle where, whether it's here or California up in your neck of the woods or the northeast. We seem to all struggle with these these things in terms of succession planning, but you definitely mentioned a couple of things, especially the sustainable word, you know, finding ways to make it last and make it um, uh, timeless, I guess. Um, yeah. No, but this is, this is a good start for this conversation. I'm glad you went to those areas. Um, so, and I think you mentioned a couple of these, but in terms of identifying and, and developing those leaders, so what are ways that we can start identifying people early? What are your thoughts on like, how do we identify those people early uh, and know that, that they're maybe preparing or we can get them prepared for those future spots? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you you know, anybody that's in the leadership role has to be a talent scout. And you're looking for um, you're looking for in some cases, there's there's people that have some natural ability. But, um, you know, just like with sports, you know, a good coach is looking more for somebody that is coachable and trainable than they are just sheer natural ability. And, and, and you, what you hope to find is somebody that has natural ability that is coachable and, and trainable too. And, um, Bruno used to say, uh, you know, the problem is if, if we hire on the front end, if we hire untrainable people, then four years later, they want to be promoted. And, uh, um, you know, there's no getting around that. So it's important to have in your culture that you have, you know, a standard that you that you must meet to to get on the job. And then people are going to have different talents. I've I've never been one to to um, look down upon somebody that wanted to be a career firefighter or a career driver, because I think those are very important, you know, senior positions that you need that longevity of experience in. And some people just don't want the hassle of being a, a supervisor and all the, the administrative side that comes with it. So, um, and if somebody really wanted that, I, d I never discourage that, but I also would encourage people to take the promotional exam, uh, or a chief's position, even though it wasn't very attractive for, for a while in our organization, but I would always use the argument. I'm like, well, if you know somebody's going to take that position and uh, and you've got skills and talent and we need people like you in the position and every promotion is a sacrifice of of more responsibility, more time um, that you have to 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 spend learning and, and engaging with people and learning tasks. And so uh, you have to accept that, that it is going to be a, a sacrifice, but you want to identify the people who want to move up to make the organization better and not just the people that are looking for a raise or um, status or, you know, just the, the, uh, the folks that always grab their collars, you know, when there's a conflict and they, they show you their, their trumpet and tell you that, uh, you know, this is this is my station or whatever. You want people who really want to 
contribute to the organization and, and move the organization forward. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike the rookie coming into the station that, you know, if somebody comes in the station and they don't put much, put forth much, much effort, then there's a natural tendency for people not to put much effort into them. And, uh, you have to be careful with that as a, as a supervisor and you want to provide the basic foundation for everybody to be successful. But those who show an interest and devote more time, obviously get more time spent with them. And so it's a, it's a two way, two way responsibility. And I always, always thought that the department should have a program outlined that told people all of the qualifications, the, um, the, uh, the tasks that needed to be accomplished, the courses that they needed to take, the certifications that they needed to get in order to meet the very minimal level to be eligible to be promoted and to take the additional classes to learn and, and you know, become a leader in whatever area they were. So that, that those opportunities should be available for everybody. But the people who want to put in extra um, should not be held back. Um, in their quest, but everybody should meet those basic requirements first. And, and, you know, an example of that, if that was confusing is like, you know, your, your, your six month firefighter is at the station and they're putting in for a training class and the training classes that are offered this month are advanced forcible entry techniques, um, high rise, uh, hose stretching, techniques, uh, search and rescue, um, leadership one, two, and three. Well, the six month guy, even though it'd be great for him to take leadership one, two, and three, hasn't mastered those initial skills yet. And so they need to be learning, uh, the skills portion of those jobs so that when they get to a point where they can do more leadership, that they have a, a foundation and can make good decisions because they know the job, you know, all the way through. Yeah, though the that idea of like the career development program, I was talking to one of my chiefs who recently came out of the professional development section. And now I share that role with him right now. And during his tenure, he created, just as you're talking about, this really detailed career development plan. But just how to get there. And that's I guess having that clear direction is important and it's, it's helpful, especially when we're talking about this idea of succession. Um, the other thing you said, and I think that being intentional, deliberate are huge parts about being a leader. And you mentioned this a second ago, that leaders are talent scouts. And it's funny that you say that and I'm like, oh my God, you know, you're right. I wish somebody had said that to me years ago when I first started becoming an officer or taking on more of a leadership role and just, but you're just saying that out loud that, hey, you are a talent scout. Not only are you a leader, you're growing, you're trying to develop your team and train, but you're looking for talent. I think these powerful phrases like that one specifically, if I leave with anything after this conversation, I think it might be that already. That the idea of it's intentional, like you are a talent scout. You're looking for the people to take on the roles, to take on uh, your role when you're gone, to take on future leadership roles. Like, that's a powerful song. And you mentioned also that the idea of a promotion is a sacrifice, and it is. And I think about that now, especially where I'm at right now. 
yeah, it comes with certain accolades, but man, does it come with a lot of responsibility and a lot more things that you weren't planning on when you were starting this career. So you're definitely right about that. Um, speaking it's about other things, that games you, you're in charge of the fun and games and don't we know that, but you know, it, it, it's a, it's a give and take, it's a balance. And, you know, like even now my position it, on days, listen, I, I, I look outside and I watch the folk run the, the calls and I, I miss it, but you know, I, I think we all got our, our journeys and all got our, our paths and, and, and I, I'm enjoying the one I'm on right now, regardless of me being able to get my gear more than, than I used to, but I, I know that I, what I do is important and, you know, but again, trying to, talk about succession planning, how to entice and encourage people to take on these roles. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Um, yep. and one thing another word, really, another word I use for succession planning is it's, an, it's look at it as investment. You know, when you started on the, on the job and the, you know, of course I was fortunate enough to have a divine defined benefit pension that, that I had to pay in, pay into, but then I knew what I was going to get. Um, but for a lot of folks that just have, uh, um, you know, deferred comp or 401k or something like that, you know, the guy comes around and he tells you like, you know, you need to start out putting $100 a month or whatever it is, $100 a paycheck into this fund. And it shows you how it's going to grow over time. So you're, you're sacrificing your take home pay for a long term investment. Same with succession planning is you're going to have to slow down. And you're not going to accomplish everything that you wanted to accomplish today because you're going to have to take the time out to explain things to people, to put them on a route. But in the long run, the payoff is huge and it just it compounds every every minute you you spend with that person, giving them the insights that aren't in the book, um, having them make decisions, which is probably the most important part is. If you you're in that position, you're like, instead of just telling them what they should do, say, what would you do and make them work through that process? And I, I saw I can't I wish I could take credit for this quote, but I, I saw it back in like 1992. I have no idea where it came from, but I've used it ever since then. And it says we never have time to do it right, but we always have time to do it over. And that really just stuck with me. And every time we would get into a rush and try to push something through without doing a full training and implementation or, or thinking it through and seeing how we were going to support it, even, even right down to buying a new piece of equipment, it's like, okay, well, we got the money to buy this new whiz bang rescue tool, but we've got to budget the money to maintain that whiz bang rescue tool or in six months, it's going to be broken sitting on a shelf somewhere. And, you know, I saw that happen a lot over the course of my career. Yeah. We don't, we don't tend to see the uh, plan for the long term, whether it's a piece of equipment or even our own people. No, that's, that's a good one. Um, let's talk about mentorship for a second. I think you mentioned it just the word briefly, but uh, what role does men mentorship play today in succession planning? I, I think that you mentioned buzzwords. I think that I've heard that word being thrown around a lot as well. I know internally we have a, a mentorship program, but I know that they all look different across the board. So in today's fire service, what role does that play? Um, well, everybody, everybody that you're exposed to um, your crew your bosses, they're all mentors and you got to look at it as everybody is, you should be watching everybody and seeing how they handle situations. Um, 
some people do things wrong all the time and they're they you should still look at them as a mentor uh we always say they were a bad mentor but they're teaching you what not to do so you learn from those folks um as much as you do learn from the folks that are doing it right and you know you need to watch and see how people operate and what the reactions are to their decisions and 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 uh people naturally gravitate towards people that that they trust and that make them feel that they're a part of, of the team or the, or the group and that, that they allow them to contribute. If somebody's just telling you what to do all the time, that's not a very healthy uh, uh, relationship, but you are learning, you are learning from that and you know, okay, that's how, this person made me feel this certain way and I was not able to do anything on my own without checking with them. And it's just like being a kid, you know, you're always like, well, I'm never going to be like my parents. And then you grow up and you're exactly like your parents. So, um, same in the firehouse is you gotta, you gotta learn, you gotta learn a little bit from everybody. And those things that really sit sideways with you are just as important, um, lessons to you as the ones that, that you see that are successful. It's, it's interesting. It's an interesting play on the word mentor. Usually when you talk about the word mentor, it's usually said in such a way or thought of in such a way as it's a positive thing. Like when you mm-hmm. say the word mentor, it's a, you mean, or at least my mind, at immediately shifts to the positive. But you're right. How many people have, uh, have we learned from that weren't exactly the best influence that have in some way mentored us to what not to do. So that's a, Interesting play on the term in terms of interesting play on the, on the mentorship aspect of things. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's with these formal mentoring programs, usually you're like assigned a mentor and there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't have the same level of power as the organic mentorship that happens, um, you know, with your officer in the station. So like if you're a new employee and they assign you, you know, a captain from across town to somebody that you don't work with, but you know, somebody you bounce stuff off of or can talk to about the way things are, that's a good part of the program, but it doesn't solve the whole equation because you're learning way more from the person you're with all the time and you're watching their actions and, uh, and seeing how they handle things and, and the other um, people that are around you than you do with a with a formal structured program. Almost, I think those formal programs are almost a little more of a support network than they are actually uh, strong in the case of uh, you know like the day to day mentoring of a of a new person or a, or a new officer. You know what? I'm, and I'm writing this down. You're you're right in terms of it being formal or organic. I I've been part of different uh, programs, whether it's at my former college or even locally, where there was a lot of structure in there. And and you're right, the ones I've also been a part of are more of simply, okay, you're assigned to this person as a mentor and there wasn't much structure. So the danger there was, you know, how much deviate, how much difference is there between each person who's quote unquote that assigned mentor. So yeah, you're right. And I, I I have seen some good ones. I have had some decent mentoring pros around they're very structured and um at least have a lot more structure and, and backing behind them to where it's more 
uh, formalized and it's more, uh, uh, I guess, organized to, to, to say the least, but you're right. In terms of the stuff that happens organically as you put it informally, that's, that's powerful as well. Yeah. Um, that's the way we learn, you know, we, we imitate, um, we imitate each other and, uh, another Brunoism, you know, if you see mean kids on the playground, you follow them home and you'll find mean parents in a lot of, a lot of times. So, um, I love the departments that have, uh, you know, they've identified people that are, um, high speed training, good role models, and that are truly living the values of their organization. And they, instead of just taking a recruit firefighter and assign, okay, here's your assignment and you're stuck there until either you bid out or, you know, you get promoted or whatever. I like the, the, the systems that put people in a rotation, you know, for a year at least, or sometimes even longer, but, you know, they go to a station and they're on the engine for six months and they work with those folks daily. Then maybe they switch over to the truck and they're there for six months and then they move across town to another station but those stations aren't randomly picked. They're in the system and officers are assigned to those stations because they have the, the values, the talent and the structure that they want that new employee to get. And so after a year or two of that, if they happen to get assigned somewhere where the officer is not as good and is not as big of an influence, they've had the good influence first. Because, you know, you, I mean, that's like a running joke. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy would have been okay, but he got assigned here first and it ruined his whole perspective on the job or, or whatever. So I think that's an important piece of that. We think of the mentorship, obviously, in the officer ranks and stuff, too, but it really it starts right out the gate. And uh, and you need to you need to have rotations like that and put people with good people as much as you can and and let them rotate around and see the different styles and the, the different neighborhoods and the way, you know, the way the organization works before just giving them a permanent assignment. Cause then it's just luck, you know, it's either luck or politics. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. My, my brother, he works for Miami Dade and um, they work in an area where once you bid a spot that's yours for your career forever. And I, I, with an organization that big, I mean, that works for them and that's wonderful. But like you said, there's always that risk of, having that spot and that crew and that team and perhaps a leader that's either really, really good or maybe not. So you do, it is a risk uh, what you're talking about. And I guess if you have that ability to do that rotation, that's, that's phenomenal. My, my previous department before I came into Fort Lauderdale was like that where we got to rotate not only with our crew, but with our station and we'd go from station to station and rotate around the city. It was good to see the city, different crews, different spots. It was, uh, it was healthy. And even with the rotation aspect, I know that even around here, there are some departments, and go back to the, the what we're talking about in terms of planning for the future and getting people experience. There are some departments that I know for a fact that every two years, they are switching you from your position, especially in the upper ranks. So if you were EMS chief, you knew going in that in, a, in two years or if around that area, you are making the switch to logistics, support services, uh, training, wherever. And they do that constantly. And I always think about that because Part of me is like, man, I love that idea because you're exposing so many people to so many different areas in their organization. And when they rise the ranks, they have that tactical hands-on experience. And then the other part of that is, well, man, you're taking somebody who's really good or maybe got really good and loves what they do and, and having to move them as well. So I'm, I struggle yeah. with that because in my department, 
we kind of a mix of both. Like, I, you, if you're really good, you'll probably stay there for a long period of time. But that being said, are you in your comfort zone? Do you should you move to another area? So I struggle with that these days in terms yeah, of rotation. I think two years is too is too soon to move people around. It's a it's a great theory, but what it ends up doing is just creating a renter's mentality where, um, okay, I'm only going to be here for two years, so you got to really have a good nature and a good set of values on your own. That's not dependent on the organization to really put forth a hundred percent maximum effort in the people and the processes over it. Cause two years has gone in a blink. And, uh, I've been in that situation too. And, uh, you know, I, I guess there's some positions that, um, it's okay for, but in the, in the long run, especially the tactical and operational positions, um, you really hurt yourself because it takes, you know, it takes several years to really develop expertise in a certain area. Um, and then even down to the, to the tactical parts of knowing the buildings and knowing the territory and all that. And as soon as you learn it, then you're moved somewhere else and you start all over. You don't ever feel like you develop your, your expertise. So that's where I, you know, in, in my organization, when we were doing that recommended to the chief that instead of us rotating, uh, you know, just picking up and moving across town, you know, or to another position is that we, had a certain number of spots that were shadowing spots. And so you were temporarily assigned, like I say, you were, you know, a field battalion chief, you would temporarily get assigned for three months or four months, whatever to, to training, to work with the training chief. And then, you know, down the road, you might end up going to that spot, but you weren't just rotated out cold because if you don't, if you don't have anybody there to learn from, then you're just starting over from scratch. and you know, you're, you're in the school of hard knocks, you, you know, you'll get in there and figure it out, but, uh, you gotta be real careful with that one. Um, one of the compromises that we came up with operationally, and I don't know if they just did it for me because I was the squeaky wheel, but I stopped getting rotated to different battalions and just moved shifts. And so I, you know, like I was in the third battalion, on a shift for a while then i was on in the third battalion on c shift for a while so my knowledge of the area and the buildings and all that um didn't go away i just had different different personnel so that's that's another way of handling it but you you got to be careful i think there's been a lot of organizations that have uh lost a lot of their institutional knowledge and their territory their building knowledge and, you know, it's stuff that is not in the book, but it's stuff that you gain through experience. And you want people responding to those buildings that know e- exactly where to go for this. And they know that they've had this problem in that building and so forth. And uh, it's hard to manage your way out of out of that experiential knowledge that you gain by being in a place for a for a long time. But you can still stretch your you can still stretch out in your comfort zone and have a temporary assignment where you're shadowing somebody that's doing something totally different. But again, that goes back to that. We never have time to do it right. Um, you know, your staffing's low. You can't afford to have two people working at the same place and, and that kind of thing. So it's a, you know, it's a chess match and trying to 
to make all the pieces line up correctly. But if you approach it from the investment logic, then you're you're going to have such a better organization in the long run. Yeah, no, that, that's that's and, and that kind of brings us into the next thing I wanted to ask you about and talk about is is like tactical ways to deploy some things we're talking about. You mentioned a couple that I thought were pretty interesting. And for those of the organizations and people that are in organizations that have that ability, like Chief David was saying, in terms of whether you're an aide or a driver that's in a position to aid a battalion chief or a chief officer, uh, which is phenomenal. That, that's a great opportunity for uh, the, seeing what the next rank has uh, before we make that promotion. But they also mentioned the idea of that um, shadowing. I know that we internally here in our, our department try to do that as best we can to where if there's a new a captain or training chief coming up or, or some sort of battalion chief coming into a, an area that they're not familiar with, that there's an overlap between when that yeah. person is still there, that person stays, and at least there's a, a section of time, whether it's it can be arbitrary, a month, two months, whatever, but there is an overlap to where one can at least prepare the next person uh, for that role so there's a seamless transition. So. I've always thought that was a good thing. And, and most of the time, at least I hear a lot of good with that. And I've heard horror stories on the other side as well, but that seems to be a good tactical takeaway. I know for me internally here, because I'm always thinking about the plus one. I'm always thinking about, like, for example, if I'm in my office right now, my phone rings. And I got this from a guy in uh, uh, Chief uh, Dunbar over in uh, Miami-Dade. I was calling him one day for an issue and he picks up his phone and I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? And he goes, hey, what's going on? And I hear in the background, hey, hey. And I'm realizing, oh, crap, I'm a speakerphone. And I asked him, like, man, am I a speakerphone? He goes, yeah. And I'm like, this is brilliant. <laughs> Every time I would call the guy, he would always put me in a speakerphone with his crew. So when we had this conversation, his crew is hearing it first person. So there wasn't a transfer of knowledge. They weren't hearing it second or third person later on. And I thought, my God, that's brilliant. So what I do now is if I'm on the phone with uh, anybody, the training chief, and it has a, something to do with um, – uh, the both bureaus or the Department of Health or the Broward County Healthcare Coalition. I'll call in my my team. They'll come into my office and we'll have the conversation on speakers so they're hearing everything and they're part of that conversation. So I'm, I'm kind of building that redundancy right there as opposed to letting them know after the fact. And another thing I try to do is every time I find myself working on a project and I'm working on it by myself, my first question is why? Why am I doing this by myself? Should I be, mm. should I have a team with me? Should I be working with a partner on this? Should I delegate to somebody? You know, I always ask myself, why am I doing this by myself? So for me, that seems to work. It seems to have worked. It's been working so far with my team. And when I'm gone, when I take vacation or when I'm not available, they're able to take on the roles or they're familiar with what we're talking about. They're familiar with what we do, what I do. And it seems like it's working. So for you, are there any, what do you think of in terms of like practical ways to, to, to deploy everything we're talking about? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, well, one thing to back up to the speakerphone, um, that's, that's great, but there has to be a house rule that anytime you put somebody on speakerphone, you got to say, Hey man, I'm just letting you know you're on speakerphone. Cause you don't want them to say something that, uh, they didn't want, you didn't, didn't want the whole group to hear. So you gotta have, right. that, you gotta have that disclosure right up front or somebody's going to yes. get in big trouble. Um, <laughs> So, so that would be one, but yeah, um, you know, as a captain, I think one of the, one of the most rewarding things that I would do is when the person was, was ready to start, like start the journey into being able to fill in, to ride the seat as we called it, you know, where they would 
fill in for the officer if the officer was off. Um, there really wasn't a formal process for that, but there, you had to kind of be signed off on by your, by your officer. And, uh, there were some attempts to, to have a formal process over the years and certain requirements. But, um, one of them was that you, you had to be certified to drive the engine. That was pretty much the standard. That was the baseline. Um, but I really enjoyed riding in the back and letting somebody else ride, you know, ride the seat. Cause I mean, let's face it, you know, um, there's not too many companies that are, that are, you know, knocking down five or six house fires a day and doing all the stuff that we see on TV. A lot of, a lot of the, the calls that we go on are really not even emergencies, but they're opportunities to go through the process of size up or, um, being in command and it's just practice reps. And if you're there with them, um, and you do get that, you know, career call that's like you know something huge you can always step back up into your role and say hey man i I got this one but for you know car fires and dumpster fires and one room and content and all the ems calls um there's no reason why you can't back off and sort of become you know um become the firefighter and let that person develop those skills and and with that, you, you have to critique just like it was a training run. You got to, you know, talk about how it went, what do they think and what, what could have been done better. Um, because if not, um, if you just, if you just put them in there and don't give them any feedback, then they might be getting bad experience because maybe they're not doing, they're not making good decisions and you're never giving them the corrections. So that's like, uh, it's like doing a fire simulation if the person running the fire simulation doesn't really have a grasp on building construction, fire behavior, fire dynamics and command, then they show you a picture or an animation and then you say whatever. And then they just say 10, four and they move on and you don't really learn anything that way. So uh, I thought that was probably one of the most, you know, it was, it was fun to me to see them ride seat, have to, figure out where they're going to keep their radio. Are they going to keep it in the same place they did as a firefighter? Are they going to have it jockeyed a little different? Um, what gear are they going to have on before they get on the rig? What are they going to do when they get off the rig? How are they going to do a 360? How are they, you know, what communications are they going to give? And uh, I think that was just huge in the development. And, you know, it's, it's a combination. I, I guess you could really say it's mentorship or training, whatever, but, to me, it all ties into the succession planning because you are, you are building that person to take over the next role and, uh, vitally important. And, and you got to take the time to do that or, or the, or your folks just don't develop. And then if you happen to get thrown into a situation that you aren't ready for, um, you know, first of all, somebody can get seriously hurt or whatever, but then you also destroy their confidence and there takes a longer time for them to recover and, and get back in the learning mode. But if you can set them up for success on the front end through those emergency calls that we all know end up being non-emergency once we get there, then you're just building the reps and you're getting them used to, uh, 
getting them used to making decisions. And that's that's where the fire service is really weak right now is those opportunities for people to make decisions. And and with the generational differences, you hear it all the time in training. People want to know, well, how do I do this or what am I supposed to do in this? And there's just there's so much more to it. It's very dynamic and you have to develop people that have strong basic skills but also can apply them in the right situation because you know there's rarely ever two incidents that are exactly the same so i think that that what you said there was very powerful but i think the most powerful part of it was the opportunity to provide feedback i think that was that's it's one thing to let them ride up in the seat and thing but if you're not providing feedback to give them the, the good, the bad, the indifferent, whatever, that's it, it sometimes can either go to waste or be misinterpreted. So I think that was powerful what you just said right there. Not only letting them have the opportunity, but giving them the feedback. Like that's that to me is probably the biggest part of that right there. Because there are there are opportunities. Every call you run on is an opportunity. If you see it that way, that's a powerful way to to, to measure your folk. Um I think that you also mentioned the generational differences. And I know that we could if we go off on that tangent, we'll be here till tomorrow morning. But what I thought was interesting is in terms of the, the generational, we have a, a cadet class going on right now. And, you know, it, it's funny because and maybe I'm just seeing this from, from our perspective, but I know that there's certain things that they that they would put out there and whatnot, but I know they're they're asking why so much these days, but in a good way. They're not asking why to be annoying. They're asking why because they want to know. Um, I remember uh, we were doing saws over here at one of the stations one day. We were talking about rotary saws and inboard and outboard configured. And on our engines, we carry inboard configured saws. But one can argue that they should be outboard configured because that's more adaptable for forceful entry. But this this brand new firefighter was just asking, well, why do we do that? What, what's the reason we do that? And it was just the way he asked it wasn't because he was being annoying, because he wanted to know, wanted that information. And even with this group we have right now, um, they ask why on everything, but it's you know, because they want to learn. And I love it because it really, it, it's double-edged because one, we'd love to explain why, to make sure they know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. But it's also a challenge to us. We're being asked why so much that we're we going, oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a challenge to us because we walk into the room going, man, I better know my stuff because they are going to ask why. I better be on my game. And I love that they're coming with that, that energy to want to know why they're doing what they're doing. So yeah, I find the whole training bureau prep for that now they, they understand that even our fire chief he went by there to ask them some questions he was planning to stay there for half an hour he asked them you know what else do you want to know and he ended up staying there twice as long because they kept asking all kinds of questions why do we do this why did you what did you experience you have and it was great so i'm glad to see that and uh, this, this these groups coming in <laughs> um uh, going not off track a little bit but uh, one of the questions i always ask to, to the, the people in the podcast I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on this is from your perspective. And we talk about leadership traits. When you go there, where does your mind go in terms of what are the the, the greatest qualities of leaders or, or the best leadership traits for our, our leaders out there? Um, first and foremost, I mean, you have to have the ability to develop trust. That's the, that's the key to it all. If you can't do that, then nothing else is going to be successful long term i mean obviously you can order somebody to do something and get get something done but the the ability to develop trust and and the main component to that is first of all you have to be competent and 
um, and you have to be able to get results. So I had somebody tell me one time I, I got an assignment. I was curious about why I was being put in this assignment. And I said, I really don't know anything about this. And they said, well, you don't have to know anything about it. You just have to manage it. And I'm like, well, that's not really how can I can't make good decisions. You know, if I was running an assembly line and I had to get, you know, 30 of these cranked out every day and this nut went on this bolt. So, and so, yeah, I could manage that process, but in, in jobs in the, in the, in the fire department, it's, it's so dynamic that if you don't know the work that your people are doing, then you can't possibly make good decisions. Obviously you can't make good tactical decisions, but you can't, you can't know what's important to budget for. You can't know what's important to train on and all that. So you have to have some type of, of comp level of competency for the, for the job that you're, that you're leading or the section you're leading. Um, unless, unless the organization just wants a manager, um, there, which is just somebody to keep the train on the tracks and sign the paperwork and, you know, make sure people get paid on time. Um, that's the management part, but the leadership part, you, you have to be competent in what you're, what you're leading or have the ability to get people who are competent as your right hand people that, that you can, that you can, you know, confident, have confidence in to, to manage that day to day aspect and obviously the higher you go up in the organization you can't be an expert at everything so you you build your team according to that to that model but um but yeah it's uh i think the the traits that that i look for the most is is building trust and there's so much that goes behind that whether it's integrity um your competence uh, and your ability to to motivate you know um motivate people to get out of their comfort zone or do things that they might not have um, thought that they would be good at, but you, you expose them to a lot of things. And and the other big part is just providing opportunities, um, opening doors and, and letting them test it out. And if it doesn't work out, not being mad at them, you know, letting them experiment a little bit and, uh, um, reading some of the old military history and all as, as much of a, a hard, hard nosed by the book guy that, that Patton um, seemed to be in the movie representations and, and in some of the stuff that you read, you know, there, there was a story about him. Uh, he would deny firefighters the ability to uh, um, take off if they're, you know, they have a parent that died or whatever, and they wanted to leave Europe and go to their, their parents' funeral, whatever, he would deny it. And uh, so you think, man, this guy's a hard butt, man. But, um, but on the other hand, he would never set anybody up to fail. As a new general was coming up under his command, he would give them some very easy battles. Like he would say, you know, I need you to make sure that this side is secure or I need you to go. And he already knew they were going to win before he even sent them out there. They didn't know that but he set them up to succeed several times over the course of, of a period of time to build their confidence so that they, they, you know, weren't distracted by, by too many failures. Um, obviously they had to learn, they had to learn 
through the school of hard knocks and some things, but um, he didn't deliberately set them up to fail so that he could, you know, get the glory of coming and saving the day as the senior officer, what have you. So I thought that was a good lesson in, uh, in history there is like, give people things that you know they can be successful at. They're still going to learn things along the way, then challenge them a little bit more and, you know, in, in increments instead of giving them some project that, you know, there's no way in the world that they can accomplish. And, uh, and I've seen it both ways. I've seen people do that really well. And I've seen people give people things that they know they can't do to make them look bad. And, uh, that's not good for anybody. I like that. You, you mentioned uh, trust and, and the confidence portion and the integrity. And I always go back to a, a quote that, uh, Stephen M. R. Covey wrote this book, The Speed of Trust, that trust is equal parts character and confidence. So what yep. you just said there in terms of the confident part and the integrity part, that, that really spoke to me because I work, you know, part of me is a scientist, you know, I have a chemistry background. So I like part of my mind goes to equations. So when I see, you know, that, that, those equation things like this equals this, it, it speaks to me, but you definitely spelled it out in terms of the, the, the reasoning and the, the need for trust. And it's some examples too. I like that. I got to, I got I'm a, I'm a reader. And one thing I have not read is a lot of military history. And that's on my to-do list, but I've got books in my, my, in my, my show that I haven't read yet. It's on my, it's on my to-do list to do that. But I, I, um, I know that you know, Patton, for example, it's one of those, maybe I've seen the movie, but I've not read the book. So that's on my to-do list to do. Um, Great movie. Uh, one of my favorites. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, one of my favorite questions that I like to ask is in terms of like, and I, I'm really curious to hear your perspective because of not only your experiences, but you're, you're now your platform here with fire engineering and FPLC. But for you, what are your concerns? In other words, what keeps you up at night in terms of the fire service? What are your concerns these days? Well, ever since I've retired, um, interestingly enough, it doesn't take anything to keep me up at night because I hardly sleep. I don't know what that is. I slept better in the fire station than I do at home. So uh, I'm just because uh, I'm getting old, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the things with the with the magazine and FDIC, you know, that you're like. You're it's just like a, a, a scene you're having to make some decisions with not all the information you need. So even right down to picking instructors uh, to teach. So you got a proposal. It's almost like grading a test. You know, you're looking at the proposal, you're seeing how it looks, how it's structured. And it's like a big organization. There's no way, you know, everybody. And so um, sometimes you're taking a risk on somebody. They had a good proposal but maybe they're really not an expert in that subject, but you gave them the platform to teach. So that's something that's always in the back of my mind is to, to spend time vetting people, but it's a balance because you can't, you can't dig into every single person and get a full history background on them. You have to rely on what they, what they give you. And, um, you know, some, some people don't, you know, it's like you're filling out the proposal and it says, you know, your resume and it says available upon request. Well, we requested <laughs> it in the package, you know, right. and it's like, how can I make a decision if you didn't, if you don't tell me where you work? So I don't have any context of, you know, um, 
you know, for example, there was somebody has been several years ago, but, but I've been reviewing these, these proposals for years now. And so there was somebody that proposed to do, um, incident command for high rise operations, which was, a at the time, I'm sure they still have it, but it was like a, it was a national fire Academy class. And, uh, you know, you could sign up and go take it. And, uh, it was taught, uh, regionally too, but it was all, you always got a national fire Academy certificate up uh, from it. And so this person proposed to teach, you know, incident command for high rise operations. And they did put where they worked. So I was like, you know, researching and looking up and like, there wasn't a high rise building within 300 miles of where their department was. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they moved from somewhere else and, and all. And, and, uh, you know, I couldn't find any, any additional information with it, but that person had taken the class before. And that's not the instructor that we're looking for, for FDIC. He might've been able to present the material. Okay. But what we're looking for is somebody that has experience and expertise in that subject. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit, we don't always get it right. Um, but that takes up a tremendous amount of time for the board who reviews the, the, um, the proposals and for me, Diane and the team that actually has to make the final decision. That is always just like, oh man, I hope this guy's good, you know, or I hope this this person has, you know, really good, good experience in this. And then sometimes, you know, you can have somebody that has a lot of experience in it, but they're not that great of an instructor too. So uh that that is something that is uh something that weighs heavy. And then the other thing is just with the articles too, it's like there's so much information and you can't be an expert in all of it. So you have to rely on the technical editors in the system. And, you know, every now and then we find that we, we publish something that wasn't a hundred percent, you know, what it should have been. And we either have to make a correction or, um, you know, not use that, that person again. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's not unlike going to a fire and you never have all the information, you know, and, uh, that's part of the, part of the scary process of, of being in the position. But I think overall we do a good job with it, but um, it's definitely always in the back of my mind. Uh, that's a good analogy in terms of the, the analogy from what you do with an FTSC and engineering to in general, making decisions with possibly not all the info there. It's a, it's a good analogy to use. <laughs> um, yep. as, as, we're, as we're coming close to this, we've been here, I guess, for a little over an hour or whatever. Not, not that I'm, I'm looking at the time or anything, but as we're coming, coming close here, um, and this is a question for me, too, you know, as I'm developing these podcasts and as I continue to interact with the people, uh, not only from FDSD and fire engineering, but from other people that are out there in terms of teaching and, and the succession planning aspect of things, um, what do you find or what are you hearing that? firefighters want or more specifically what firefighters need to hear more of as we go forward in other words if i'm planning for another podcast or a topic or a class or what is your thoughts on what they need to hear these days going forward um well uh that's interesting because i would say what they need in most cases is a lot more realistic training um 
but in terms of what they need to hear is they need to hear um they need to hear people talk about their experiences from a lot of different backgrounds so uh people you know people love hearing uh the guys from new york and how they do things and uh you know the big cities and and all that but the majority of the fire service is um running with one or two people on their rig and um then you got another group that's running with with three and so people need to hear all sides of of how how different areas cope with the with the problems of meeting standards with being able to tactically accomplish all the things that have to be uh accomplished on the on the scene and then um and then what are you know we talked about buzzwords but it's another buzzword what what are the best practices that work and there is no one best practice and that's kind of my point is there's a best practice for uh low manpower um department there's a best practice for medium staffing levels and then there's a best practice for having all the people that you need to to cover all the positions so um I think that's important is to get people from from rural America that's volunteer that, you know, drives, picks up the rig and and drives it to the scene and waits for for people to for our crew to assemble to uh, areas that have two people assigned to the rigs all the time and then all the way up to, you know, the ones that have five or six assigned and just learn from how everybody does things different but everybody still has to accomplish the same goals. You know, the difference is going to be the, the speed and, and efficiency. So uh, I think that's important. You know, how does a, how does a volunteer department handle secession planning? How does a, a suburban department handle it versus how does a department with a million resources and programs and training classes and all handle it? Cause you're going to get, you're going to get different perspectives uh, from all over the country. And I think that's, uh, I think that's important. And that's one of the things when I got involved in UL, the first thing I did with UL was the vertical ventilation um, study. And I went in there with my background, my resources and, you know, my fire scene experience and walked out the first day, just dumbfounded at how different everybody did things. And, and I think we have a tendency to say, well, that's not the right way to do it. Well, it's the right way in certain areas to do it because of, because of staffing levels or whatever. So, um, when you get those perspectives and you realize it's just like politics, they they say all politics are local, all firefighting is local too. And you have different building construction, you have different, staffing levels, different equipment. And, uh, you know, prime example is that I don't, I don't know what this, uh, there's like such an obsession with a group of people about, um, everything that the, the fire service over in Europe does, you know, it's like, well, they do this and they use high pressure and they use this and they have these helmets and all this stuff. And it's like, but it's different. You know, it's adapted, it's adapted to the construction and to the, to the 
staffing and to the equipment. And it's not to say it's raw or right. It's, it's right for them and their situation, but it may not be right for a department here um, because the construction's totally different. So you got to be careful when you, when you see things that look really attractive or, or, or whatever, and, and bring it back to the reality of the local decision makers and why you do things. You can learn from everybody and you'll, you'll pick up something, but um, plug and play rarely works anywhere. Um, just ask all the departments that got copies of Phoenix uh, SOPs and tried to implement them in their own organization and they didn't work. It's right. because they were developed out of a culture that that was different than than the culture at your particular organizations. Sure, there's good pieces of them that you can use, but you couldn't use it word for word in its entirety and have it have the same impact as it did in Phoenix because it wasn't developed the same way. So I think that's important right. just to hear the different perspectives, uh, you know, from all the different corners of the fire service. I. I love the way you ended off that. I, I think that's so many people so many people need to hear that. In other words, hearing it from a different perspective. So many people need to hear that because even when you're requesting articles and whatnot, it, 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 I don't think people realize that what they have to say matters. And that it brings me to so many different experiences uh, through the years here. Like, for example, during COVID, when I was the, the EMS chief during COVID, I had to figure this out with the team here. I learned as much from the smaller agencies or the single station departments that have subject matter expertise that I did with the metro size organizations. Everybody had something to offer. Everybody had a different perspective on things or more specifically, they had a way to explain something that I'm like, oh, I get it now. And it, you don't have to be from a, a nationally resounded organization. I mean, so there's so much talent out there across the board that when you said that, that that spoke to me a lot. I'm glad you were ending on that note in terms of hearing different experiences of different people from different backgrounds. That's I'm glad we're we're kind of coming close with that that concept in mind. That's powerful. And I know that from you guys, when you're asking for articles or presentation proposals, you look for that. You look for the different experiences based on the challenges they have. So I'm really glad that that you just you went there. Um yep. so as we're coming close to this, you know, um, you know, I, I wanted to just kind of provide a synopsis. And to everybody's listening, I, I know that what I try to do near the end here is I try to challenge people into not I wouldn't call it homework, but as you're listening to this, you know, what are you doing going forward? And the good thing is we mentioned a bunch of tactical takeaways of how to make some of the things we're talking about. Obviously, succession planning for us in the fire service has never I would say it's never been our forte, but we're maybe getting better at it. But hopefully, as you're listening to this, at least it's on your forefront of your mind. And you're thinking about, okay, now that I know that maybe there's challenges, how do I do my part to navigate through those? So some of the things we talked about is the idea that sometimes we feel like we're too busy to develop succession plans or to think about the next step going forward. And the reality of it is we got to be thinking about that. We got to be trying to memorialize or institutionalizing the stuff that we have in place so that you're properly preparing the people that are coming after you. We talked about um, yeah, basically leaders being talent scouts. And again, like I said to, to David, that's one thing I'm going to walk away with, with an idea that we should be thinking of ourselves as talent scouts. If we have that mentality from early on, we're always thinking about the people that can be best put in different areas. That, that spoke me. I'm glad you went there. Uh, we talked about succession planning being an investment. That if you're not going to, and basically, if you're not going to pay now, you're going to pay later and probably a lot more. Um, 
we talked about mentorship. We talked about um, uh, different ways to practically deploy some of these. And we both kind of uh, went over some ideas that worked best for us. We talked about the idea of having, if possible, like a, a shadowing period where the person going into the next rank has at least some time to absorb what's being done before that person transitions off either to another rank, another position, another department, or even retire. Um, we talked about trust and how that, that mix of character and competence is important to developing that trust. And we also talked near the end about the fact that everybody's got a voice in terms of experience and comes from different backgrounds. So just because you work for a single station volunteer fire department or a metro-sized organization, everybody in this fire service has a voice in some way, shape, or form. And more importantly, you may have people that need to hear that voice, whether it's an article, a presentation, whatever. And your voice may matter to somebody you're not even thinking about that. So I'm glad we're, we're, we're kind of coming to a close here. And those were some powerful thoughts going forward. And, and I'm glad we had this. But as we as we wrap up, Chief, uh, what, what are some final words of wisdom as we kind of wrap up this talk about succession planning as we come to close, uh, close over here? Um, everything's about the relationships that you can build with your crew uh, within your organization. And uh, you you have to demonstrate that you actually care about the people and care about the organization before you can do a lot of the things that we talked about and uh, vitally important to not forget the human factor in that relationship piece in order to be successful with it. Because if you, if you don't have that connection, and again, that's another one of those keys to trust, then you're, you're not going to be as efficient at, building what you want to build uh, until you invest in that part. And, uh, you know, if you're going to a new crew or a new position or whatever, focus your attention on that first, and then the rest of it will, will follow. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much for once again, spending the time with me. I know that you, you're probably one of the more busier people I know, uh, even though you're retired, you seem to be that much more busy, which is kind of ironic, but um, that, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't Maybe, i guess I, uh, i'm not jealous of you but <laughs> my golf game has suffered greatly but uh, i i definitely appreciate you chatting with me it's just been a really good conversation um i know that when I, we do these these podcasts i try to speak to the listener make sure they're walking away with a lot of content and i think we did them justice today and i, I appreciate that um so for you going forward um, I know that people could probably connect with you at this point. You're hard not to find a way to connect with, but if people needed to connect with you, how should they do that? Yeah, the best way is uh, email david.rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, at clarionevents.com. If you can't remember that, you can just go to the fire engineering or FDIC website. All right, sir. Well, once again, thank you for having this discussion with me. I, I, I'm glad that we did this. I, I'm walking away with a lot of stuff like I always do in these conversations. But um, so speaking to the people out there listening, uh, once again, thank you for, for tuning into this podcast, Perspectives on Leadership. We do this uh, uh, for every uh, second Friday of the month. Um, uh, as uh, we go forward, uh, I hope you uh, got something from this. And um, I'm excited to do more of these in the future. So thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.